I think there's just like really difficult contradictions that exist in the Ukraine war. Obviously, there's I think there's the the basics, which is like Ukraine has a right to defend itself from an invasion um, that seeks to sort of overthrow its government and undermine its democracy. So that's one one element, and certainly I think you see a lot of even a lot of the left in in Ukraine pretty much fully on board with that and on board with that to the extent that they say things like basically the West should give Ukraine whatever weapons it asks for including um, jets and and different things like that Um, and then the other part of that is that you know from our perspective in the West like it's yeah it it doesn't have this clear-cut sort of one-sided invasion where we're opposing imperialism, um, you know, as might be the case in the invasion of Iraq or the intervention in uh, in Syria or support for Israel or or and and obviously arming of Israel or the arming of Saudi Arabia and their sort of just unfathomably violent uh, intervention in in, in Yemen, um, and so. It doesn't have that clear... Those clear moral stakes aren't there. Uh, and so the dynamics are, are are quite complicated in the sense that the part of the left in the West opposes the um, any further support, you know, uh, and, and, part, and part of the left thinks that the $100 billion or whatever in, in arms are, are a good thing. Um, <laughs> I mean, probably probably not many think that but but then you know that then you have to look at the dynamics of like in terms of the global context like what is spending a hundred billion dollars on arms do um like what effect does that have you have you know it has has the effect you know undisputedly of fueling the military industrial complex and when you fuel the military industrial complex like what does that do like that that means the gun lobby has more momentum. It means you have um, the the lobbying power of military contractors increases, uh, and they're able to, you know, that there's they they are actually, I think, paying for the for Ukraine, sort of the Ukrainian government's lobbying in Washington D.C., for example. So you have these like all these perverse and very pernicious effects that happen um in terms of in terms of just powering up a war machine and giving it more of the overall share of wealth in our society and in our economy um and that of course is going to lead to all kinds of other things um and then of course you have to look at the the intentions like um the u.s is not in this for ukrainian self-determination and that's not that's not the intention or the valence with which they're giving, you know, over a hundred billion dollars in 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 support and arms to Ukraine. That's not um, what they're up to. Um, their explicit goal seems to be to surround and diminish the geopolitical power of Russia, and Russia knows this, and that's and I think because of the the sort of economic dynamics within Russia, they, um, you know, and the sort of demographic issues, economic issues, um, and so on, they sort of see, they, they see this as their, as their chance to, 
as they're sort of I think I think Russia's you know geopolitically sees this as a, a lot of them see this as their last chance to assert themselves and and establish a sphere of influence um, I don't think it's going the way they hoped um, but but you know um, certainly some foreign policy experts and I don't see any reason to doubt them at this point um, say that Russia sees this as existential um, so that leads us to the other big contradiction, which is like the more Ukraine defends itself, the the kind of closer we get to the potential for the use of nuclear weapons, which um, could, in the best case scenario, lead to a, just a massive loss of life and a permanent, not a semi-permanent sort of toxification of an entire area. Um, and in the worst case scenario, results in the destruction of human civilization as a whole, more or less, you know, mutually assured destruction of the, like, you know, the U.S. and Russia. If, if, because, because things can escalate so quickly um, in that, in, in, a, in a situation where two nuclear superpowers are in conflict with each other, um, you can have these sort of runaway effects, um, you know, again, the probably the most likely version um, of a nuclear exchange or a nuclear attack is that Ukraine is successful in pushing Russia back and then Russia get, feels out of desperation, basically uses a nuclear weapon against Ukraine and then there's no response because nobody wants to start a bigger nuclear war uh, and, you know, Russia becomes a pariah state globally as a result of that, but also, uh, you know, turns the tide of, of, of the war. It, it becomes very complicated, um, to, to, to anticipate, but the, but the, but I guess the, the point is that the final pole of the, of the multiple contradictions of, of, of making political decisions about what to support and who to support is that, um, is that, you know, there is a very real risk that this can escalate into nuclear war.
so we are here at home practicing um, Kolada. Uh, we are gathering together with a cup of tea and some homemade uh, foods and goods. We made the uh, cake from um, cottage cheese and some uh, baked apple by Bosnian recipe. Respect. <laughs> okay. Um, we have a diduch in the middle of our table. What is that? Diduch uh, uh, literally means uh, did, uh, grandfather, a duch, a spirit. So mm. uh, grandfather's spirit. This is a part of uh, Ukrainian Christmas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, it, and it's made from wheat and... It's made from rye. From rye, okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're singing uh, around the table and uh, Choosing which key works better for whose voice, and uh, going going over the lyrics because uh, half of our group are native speakers, Ukrainian, and uh, other part of our groups are people from uh, different backgrounds mm -hmm. and cultures. Mm -hmm. So they sing by transliteration, mm -hmm. and uh, so we work uh, on explaining mm -hmm. some of the words, some of the pronunciation, and. Uh, and the meaning of the songs. Why is it important for you to sing these songs here in Montreal? It's important to me to share the culture, mm -hmm. um, also uh, to enjoy myself, to mm -hmm. practice it. Um, and uh, it's also important, especially today, because Ukrainian culture has been suppressed so much and uh, it just matters to give it another voice and another place to live.
In our conversations in the past, we've commented together about being of a similar generation in the sense that we came of age politically uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s during what came to be called the anti-globalization movement or the ultra-globalization movement, a movement that uh, in 2001, after the attacks on the World Trade Center in New York, uh, in some ways morphed into a global anti-war movement and at best an anti-imperialist movement. We were commenting the last time we spoke in person that it felt like in those days, which are now 20 years ago or so, uh, we had some kind of optimism. Uh, we had an optimism that mass protests uh, that were largely organized in decentralized ways uh, by a sort of swarming of collectives could somehow overturn or capsize global capitalism, or at least in the imaginations of some, that we would be able to manifest enough collective power that we could perhaps convince governments uh, to place regulations on corporations to rein in the pathologies and the predations of capitalism, or that through the mobilization of popular power, we could develop some sort of counterpower to corporate globalization, that we could create a people's globalization from below. And I'm reflecting that uh, as I'm recording these words, we're now just a little bit over 20 years since what at the time were considered to be the world's largest demonstrations in human history against the American-led invasion of Iraq in 2003 uh, in February. And I was reflecting that in those 20 years, we seem to have seen a, a number of really massive shifts. Uh, of course, there have been many political and economic shifts, neoliberalism, has advanced and gotten worse. Corporate power is more powerful than it's ever been. And we've seen the emergence not only of a kind of global decentralized capitalist power, uh, but actually rival capitalist blocks on the world stage, competing for market share and geopolitical influence in a way that seems likely to lead us, uh, has already led us to war. Uh, in many different zones around the world and threatens to lead to even wider and more catastrophic and terrible conflicts. And I wonder, beyond those changes that have happened on the level of economics and the level of politics, uh, there's also been a change on the level of culture and the culture of movements as well. There doesn't seem to be today the kind of optimism that we saw 20 years ago the idea that we could actually turn things around and change things seems to be farther from reach. Perhaps this has something to do with the situation of the climate, and we've watched over the last, really the last 20 years or more, global power do nothing about the climate crisis. Governments bending to the will of corporations to ensure their continued profitability, rather than actually confront the climate crisis through the means that it would require, which would involve uh, endangering the profit of corporations and making sacrifices. So perhaps that has something to do with it, but I think it brings us to the questions of the war, uh, of Russia's imperial aggression in Ukraine, as it has been, um, you know, has been shaped also by the imperialism of the West 
through the NATO alliance. And the question that seems to arise for me now is, was our optimism 20 years ago naive? Or were there really possibilities for change? And if there were possibilities for change 20 years ago, where did we as a global movement go wrong? Why did that change not happen? Why did corporate globalization, uh, as we understood it then, simply get worse and become more militarized and more dangerous and more predatory? And the question that flows from that is, what might we learn, both good and bad, from those movements now 20 years ago, from that moment of anti-war and anti-imperialist struggle, from the ultra-globalization movement, about how to organize in this new era that appears to be dawning of rival empires within a global capitalist space, where we're seeing, for instance, increasing inter-imperialist rivalry between Russia and China and the Western countries and other forces, and even including divisions within those blocks as well. Is there some way that we can take inspiration from those movements 20 years ago in order to think through a new kind of internationalism, a kind of internationalism that, that might emerge within all of these imperial blocks, but against them, and might be able to build solidarity across those different territories and between different people to say we refuse not only the particular policies of the imperial bloc that we happen to live in, whether that's Canada, the United States, and the West, or Russia or China, but instead are calling for a vision of some sort of planetary politics that's adequate to our moment. Can we learn something about those movements that we were trying to build 20 years ago? And or, conversely, what is it that we should learn not to do from those movements 20 years ago? How should we learn from our failures or at the very least our lack of success? What do we need to do differently this time around? Because the time is short and the crisis deepens. And as the crisis deepens, the lure of uh, warlords increases, whether those warlords wear suits or military fatigues, whether those warlords play on the field of military battles or on the field of corporate warfare. These are the questions I have in mind uh, and I hope they make sense and I hope we can find answers.
Russia's terrible invasion of Ukraine is causing immense suffering and death. It's an immoral and flagrant violation of international law. And a year of war could very well escalate into something even more awful. It needs to end. We need to go beyond groupthink and start asking deeper questions. What does meaningful solidarity with Ukraine look like? We also have to consider our own government's roles in this calamitous situation and any responsibility we bear for the suffering experienced by innocent Ukrainians. Not much is reported, for instance, about Canada's role in the 2014 overthrow of the elected Ukrainian president, an event that sparked war in the east of the country. Yet the Canadian press reported that anti-government protesters were stationed at the Canadian embassy in Kyiv for a week during the protests in 2014 that ousted Yanukovych. What does this mean? Before the war started, there were 500 Canadian troops leading a NATO mission on Russia's doorstep in Latvia alongside thousands of British and US troops in Eastern Europe. Through the training mission, Operation Unifier, one might argue Canada has been in a proxy war with Russia since 2015. One aim of this training mission was to bring Ukrainian military into NATO. As many have pointed out, a factor driving regional tensions is NATO expansion across Eastern Europe. Since the early 90s, Canada has pushed to expand NATO to Russia's doorstep, despite promises to Soviet officials not to do so. Since February 24, Canada has promoted further NATO expansion and increased its already significant troop levels in Eastern Europe. So, is Canada at war with Russia? If so, we deserve to know. It's hard to see how this isn't the case with our special forces on the ground, with Canadians training Ukrainian forces, promotion of former soldiers to join the Ukrainian military. And on the one-year anniversary of the war, Le Devoir reported that Canada had donated $2.26 billion in arms to Ukraine. Right now, it seems the only clear winners are weapons companies. To find a way out of all this, we have to come to terms with the history of this war. Instead of further fueling and escalating the conflict, we need to call on our governments to help negotiate a way out of it. Until now, Ottawa has spurned negotiations. But without an end to this war, more Ukrainians will die, and the possibility of cataclysmic nuclear war will grow. This is such a dangerous moment. What are we doing to move towards peace?
flood renders a tree an iceberg, petrified under ages of claret and cloud. The soil remembers. It's too much. The rays at daybreak polarize in the current. Lie down and remain while the memories are cogitated, coagulated. Sit through seasons with me, if you can. Help me write the same poem again and again, the same pamphlet and again the same question. How can we love each other better, more completely? Indeterminately, the blood must dry before we are ready. Red streaming, eddies slow and constant, occasional rapids that stain the canoe. I hear their proposal to build a dam and live on the drier side, to never look at the blood that pools from the bodies on the body of our land. I hear their stories which fragment truths, which carve the trees, which clip our heathered solace, which shape the water towards a predestined path. I hear their narrative casting filamented nightfall over a sun, a compass, a pleochroic sense of calm. I look over the crest into the black current reservoir and sit through seasons as I erode. The urgency is killing me. Wearing thin, I was not meant to live this way. The blood has not yet dried. Hands and eyes meet mine. You lead me away. Watching the urgency and violence is poison flowing freely, and instead we walk together towards the source, and there, at the fountainhead, like stones against a tide, we stand through seasons.